0: Hey, everyone. I'm George Edelman, and we have a treat today to members of the art department from the feature film Mank, which was directed by the great David Fincher. Now, we've talked to people who've worked with David Fincher before. If you haven't heard our interview with Jeff Cronenwith, who's been a longtime DP collaborator with Finch, check it out. That was a lot of fun. But Bert has worked with Fincher, on a number of projects as the production designer. Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, Curious Case of Benjamin Button, for which he won an Oscar, Zodiac, uh, House of Cards, Social Network, a whole bunch of them. But recently, Mank, which poses all kinds of unique challenges, I'm sure you can imagine since it takes place in the period. There's a lot of really cool stuff that Don has to offer about that. And joining him and I on the podcast is Jan Pascal, who's a set decorator and she worked on Mank, as well as, oh, a bunch of stuff you've seen, like, well, what you're going to see soon, I think, Top Gun Maverick, a bunch of other stuff you've seen, Anchorman, The Internship, Argo, Veep, Horrible Bosses, Four Christmases, Good Night and Good Luck. I mean, her resume goes way back. She started off, as she explains to us, working on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. So these two know so much about being in the art department, and One of the most important overlooked things for young filmmakers on their shorts, on their first features, is how they can manage the look of their film through production design. You may not be able to afford experienced top-notch production designers or an art department team, but that doesn't mean you should ignore it. You should probably learn a few key elements of the trade so you can do it yourself and make your film look professional because those vertical blinds on most people's windows and apartments, that's like a giveaway almost as much as crappy sound. So I highly encourage people to listen to this interview and they drop some real knowledge here on like some key things that you wouldn't even think about. This is also a great companion to Mank because they illuminate some stuff about what they had to do to sell the look, the period, etc. You'll learn a lot about working with Fincher, which is always fun. So please enjoy. But it is really uh, a pleasure to have both of you. And honestly, we, I rarely get to talk to production designers, set decorators, art department in general on this podcast. Mm-hmm. So it's very exciting, especially ones with resumes like both of yours. So I'm going to try to talk to each of you a little bit separately about your careers, but also we're here to talk about Mank, of course and uh, congratulations on its success and accolades. And I wanted to just start off by asking you both, what's it like to work with David Fincher and what was it like to work on Mank?
1: Well, Mank was a wonderful experience. I mean, just because of the nature of the project and what it was about, Mm -hmm. what it involved. I've worked with David for quite a few years now. So I'm sort of used to his way of working and he's used to my way of working. And, um, I think the relationship has grown over time and there's kind of a quiet understanding that we have between us. So, you know, working with David is always great because, you know, he's so well in tune with what he wants. He knows his film before he even starts it. It's almost like he can, he has the film in his head and it's just a matter now of getting it out of his head and getting it into physical form to share it with the world and, that's the delightful thing about him is that he's done his homework.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He knows what he wants. He's meticulous. Mm-hmm. But, you know, so are we. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's you work at a certain level, I think, with David. you um, The bar is high, but the bar should always be high, you know. And yeah,
2: exactly. you
1: work very hard. And I don't mind that. I work hard anyway. You know, people... People should work hard as it is. You know, it's not. It's not something that's. um I don't, I don't go looking for projects where it's like, oh, okay, this will be a good project because I can kind of relax a little bit. I take every project, <laughs> take every project I do seriously, and I work very hard yeah. on them all because you know we should. We should take pride in the artistry of it. We should take pride in caring about what we put forth in front of the camera, and um you know, I think that's part of it with David is that you know the people that. He surrounds himself with are people that all very much care and work very diligently on the same level to you know support his ideas and his vision. This was Jan's first experience with David, so
0: exactly. she probably has a different perspective. <laughs> yeah, I want to hear the, the other take, <laughs> the new well,
2: version. Well, it was absolutely almost the the most daunting thing as well because knowing of his perfectionism and, and how well prepared he was and also how hard Don works. Cause uh, I, I haven't met too many people that work as, as hard as Don and I do too. But, uh, it, I think Don even, even outpaces me. Um, <laughs> was
0: this the first project the two of you worked together on? Yes. 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 Oh, okay.
2: And I've always wanted to work with both of them. So it was really a treat for me, but it really was, um, I was a little nervous going in, I have to admit. They had a a little bit of a head start on me um doing the research. David has almost an encyclopedic knowledge of film equipment, which fell into my lap, which was also a bit daunting. So but it was turned out to be the best experience.
0: That is such a cool point. I want to highlight that and and elaborate on it a little bit for the audience because I, I think where my first mind, where my mind went first was like, oh, like the film equipment used on set. But then, of course, I realized, oh, no, the film equipment in the movie. Yes,
2: <laughs> right, <laughs> exactly. Because this, this exactly. is a movie
0: where they're using historic, of course, obviously, duh. But then, <laughs> but, yes. but, yeah. but I want to make yeah. sure everybody understands that that's it's recreating, like he is a direct, it's literally his wheelhouse, right? So it's yeah. not oh, like yeah. you were creating the set or the look in a world. There was, was no was cheating. Tant- Right, yes, exactly. There was None. no
1: cheating. There was no None There was away. no right. sleight of hand. You yeah. know, you you showed your cards <laughs> and that's what they were. And, you know, the thing about David that's so great is if you're just up front with him and honest about it, it's okay. You know, yes. it's like, oh, we can't find that, you know, that Mitchell camera or whatever it was yes. that we were after. It yes. doesn't exist. Or we found one, but it was probably four or five years later or three years mm-hmm. later or whatever. And, you know... And Jan did such a great job resourcing all of the equipment along with Trish Gallagher Glenn, who was the prop master, because it was so difficult to find something. I mean, we're talking about an era that's, you know, 100 years old, old, you know, (laughs) and you don't just go out and pick that stuff up. And how did
0: you find can I I'm just going to ask like once, how do you find any of the gear that was used to shoot a movie like Citizen Kane? Like, where do you go? Where, where yeah. do you look? <laughs> we,
2: we are so fortunate because there is a fabulous prop house owned by people that I've become friends with over the years. For some, some of our relationship was based on this very reason because I've done several movies of the insider work with period equipment. So um, it's history for hire. And Pam and Jim Ellier have made a point over the years of collecting movie equipment, period movie equipment. When Paramount was cleaning out and throwing things away many, many years ago, they got a call and they said, if you want it, come over now. And they rescued, I always consider it a rescue mission, that they went and rescued a lot of equipment. And then that began their collection. but a few years ago, I want I had- to be.
0: I want to be on the speed dial when people are getting rid of old. Films. Oh yeah, oh, I know. Oh, yeah. No. I know. But anyway, please. I that, that I don't want to just. I don't want to distract from this amazing story by interjecting that it just jumped in my mind. Like, no, oh, no, that's so I,
1: agree. Cool. I agree. No, but we were- you know, the other dilemma was getting it and having it look like it was actually new. New, <laughs> yeah. you know, because it's one thing, and there's and there's this. Um, I was speaking with somebody last week about this. There's sort of this mindset that people have when you do a period film that, you know, not only the, for instance, in Mac, not only the film equipment, but the environs and the signage should all be aged and worn and worn out. And, you know, you kind of forget that there was a time in those days when things were all brand new, (laughs) when the, when the signs were just freshly painted, when, The film equipment was just made and it was brought onto the set. It wasn't all, you know, beat up and ratty and worn and period.
0: Can I ask you both, walk the line for me, if you can, between having things that are old look appropriately old because everybody expects Mm -hmm. them to look old Mm -hmm. and having things that are old look new because they were new at the time. It's almost like, how's another way to put it? Like we expect everything that was that happened in 1939 to be black and white, and yet it was actually in color. Mm. (laughs) I think
1: I think black and white in that sense saved us. I think it it helped us so much, you know. And especially with picture cars because Mm. you know some of the picture cars of the period when you see them in color and you see them congregated, it just makes you seasick. You know, it's like. (laughs) You know, and some of the you know some of the colors that they painted cars. I mean, obviously, some of them were very austere and and Mm. well painted, but others were you know just these kind of odd combinations of off greens and blues or two tones or whatever. And to see them in color and to see twelve of them lined up, you kind of go ooh. But the black and white just really saved us. So you know, once we kind of got into the, the tonal world as opposed to the chroma world you know it kind of helped us a bit and i think it helped us on the on that very element of things being sort of clean versus worn you know Mm -hmm.
0: did you guys have to test everything in terms of seeing what it looked like in the tonal world and not the chroma world
1: well yeah we did test everything i mean what i think the linchpin moment was when david Came to everybody and said, "You know what? Let's take photos of everything we think we want to have in the film using the noir filter on the iPhone."
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: hmm. he—that's he, so
0: cool. That that's yeah, he what did was. this
1: brilliant thing where he standardized it, and once that yes. was done, it, everybody sort of then dispersed and set dressing, props, picture cars, myself with the sets. You know, we started to look at the world in the in that language and. Mm-hmm. The more we did it, the more tuned we became to it, to where it almost became instinctive. It became part of us, so that there were quite a few things that, at certain points in time, we didn't even have to look at it in the photo. We could just look at it with our bare eye and know that's not going to work or that is going to work. So I think once things kind of become instinctive, then it it sort of you realize that you're in that world, and that's where you want to be, and that's where you should be, and then everything sort of progressed just sort of with this very sort of organic creative flow, you know, did,
0: did you have anything more on that, Jan? We
2: have, we had a few surprises, right, Don? Uh, Yeah.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, one, one for me was that because Mank is in bed for half the movie, (laughs) uh, she, she, sheets are a big deal in my world. So, Normally, on any other show, you would never use white, white sheets. Uh, we always have to, we call it teching them. We tech them down a little bit so that they're not bright white.
0: Can you tell, can you illuminate for anybody who's not familiar what the fear of white, what the white sheet issue is and, and go through that a little bit?
2: Well, it, it creates issues for lighting. It can create mm-hmm. a bounce.
0: Like, it creates exposure problems.
2: Yeah, exposure mm-hmm. problems. And and it it's always a problem. And there's always the discussion at the beginning of a movie with the director of photography about what do we do about white? What do we do about mirrors? What do we do mm-hmm. about glass in in windows and all of that sort of thing? So at the beginning, when we did our first camera test, I got... Every shade from white to gray to beige to all the colors that we normally use. And I pushed it a little bit in both directions. And surprisingly to me, the white, white was the best, which was unheard of. And it was all because of the way the image was being captured digitally.
0: The camera. Remind us all again, the camera and the... What was it? The red? It was red. Yeah. Yeah. And Eric Mezerschmidt shot it. I know we've it's funny yes. i've had uh, I've done multiple interviews with Jeff Cronin with, who I know you've worked with a, a few times Donald. oh yeah, yeah, yeah. another one of the regulars on a Fincher uh, <laughs> film, but so white was he surprised to see that white worked? I'm curious how camera and lighting responded to to that being the best one, and how David responded.
2: I don't know I, if he was as surprised as I was well I. I, I... <laughs>
1: I do think during the testing that, you know, he he learned quite a bit. And I think think for all of us, it was a bit exploratory, but he did some of his own testing with daylight and with nightlight and so forth. And so by the time we got to testing specific elements, I think he was well versed in what he was dealing with. For the most part, I mean, I mean, I will say one thing about this film, Mag, um, Probably more so than any other film I've been on, but not necessarily. But I will say a little bit more so is that, being the socialist I am, it truly was a even <laughs> collaborative effort. Yes, it was. You know, absolutely. The, the I'm sort of embarrassed to even be in this podcast without having the prop master, mm-hmm. without having Trish Somerville who did.
0: Yeah. Um, who did wardrobe
1: and costumes?
0: Yeah. Well, this warms the heart of my socialist <laughs> and oh. mentality as well, and certainly the approach to filmmaking that way. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, everything
1: Eric brought to the to the picture by looking at the sets and and his lighting and his interpretation of them, mm-hmm. and even quite honestly, you know, something that in watching it again a couple of weeks ago, and. I don't know if it was just me, but the sound, you know, the sound yeah. that, that Ren did and so forth. Yep. And I realized what an effect that has just mm-hmm. visually, it becomes this texture that almost lives on the walls of the sets. And I thought, you know, I've never, yep. I've never realized that before in a film that I've worked on as I have in this one. And, um, but I will say this, like Trish Somerville with the costumes, oh. I was looking at set photos of before, mm-hmm. before the, the cast was brought in for scenes, and then I was mm-hmm. looking at photos when the cast was there, and I mean the dimension to the set that mm-hmm. she added yeah. is—it's unbelievable to me. It yeah, just—it
2: was breathtaking. It really yeah, was. And,
1: it, and it's beyond the costumes. It was so integrated into the sets, and she deserves so much credit for um, her contributions to that because she actually gave my sets more depth, mm-hmm. as well as the other contributors that I, I mentioned just a moment ago. So, you know, it's all collaborative and coming from an art background in the seventies where it was all sort of like, you know, collaborative art and so forth. It's, you take the sword called the ego, you unbelt it and you lay it on the ground and then you all (laughs) work together and that's how it goes. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. I mean, I I love that approach and it's so great that it was, it was, you framed it as this kind of group approach and collaboration. And at the same time, framing that he has so much in mind and, you know, he has this reputation, but also everybody I've talked to who works with him, David Fincher, um, this sort of like exacting, like it's going to be this specific mm-hmm. way. I wonder from both of you, this is a movie about the industry, it's a movie about a one of the most important beloved movies. (laughs) How much did the movie of Citizen Kane and its weight play into this kind of everyone's on deck mentality that this was special, that this was, I mean, I I wonder and imagine any David Fincher movie, maybe there's some of that, but was this a little different because of the weight of, it's a story about your own craft, but also about the seminal piece within it?
1: I would say this. I would say, first of all, that we certainly didn't try to replicate Citizen Kane or or it wasn't sure. about making another Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane was kind of theatrical. I mean, I felt the weight of this movie only because I knew it was something that David, his father, had written and he's been yeah. wanting to make it for a long time. Right. And it's- I wouldn't say I felt weight so much as I felt, I don't know, privileged, I think. Yeah. And okay. I felt privileged because not only of that, but because it dealt with the history of Los Angeles, the mm-hmm. history of Hollywood, and the history of filmmaking within Los yes. Angeles. And, you know, I love this city. I, I There's no place in the world like Los Angeles to me. And I love this industry. And it was so wonderful to have a project come your way where you were able to research and get much deeper into a specific project with specific people that were involved in it and get a a deeper, detailed understanding of their lives and the process of that period and what some of the day-in, day-out nuances of life within and without of the studios was at that time period. I think this reference to Citizen Kane is primarily in the story. It's Mm -hmm. the story about the writing of Citizen Kane, and therefore, there's some crossover. There's some there's some parallel lines that that touch each other and cross over. But at the same time, it isn't meant to be another Citizen Kane. In fact, when David first talked to me about it, actually, he talked to me about it a couple of times early on. One time we were working on another project. We were doing a feasibility study on something. And we were meeting in a coffee shop about that other project and, you know, somehow or other at the end of the conversation, he said, oh, and by the way, after this one, what I want to do is I want to do this black and white period film. That's something I've wanted to do for a long time. And, <laughs> you know, I didn't kind of take it too seriously because my I was, still, I was still on the saddle of a horse that I was riding for that other project. And then that project postponed and you know, I just sort of thought, okay, well, well, let's see what comes up. And then they approached me about Mank and they said, you know, it's not going to happen until later in the year. So I, you know, I just thought I would just sit and wait after I read it. And I met with him in the hallway outside of his office. And I remember him saying to me, and this, this stayed with me the whole movie. And it was sort of the framework for me for the whole movie. He said to me, yeah, I want it to be like you're in a you're in a film vault, and you're looking, and you come across, and there's Citizen Kane, and then right next to it, there's this film called Mank And you pull it out, and you go, "Oh," and you realize that it was made at the same time. So he really wanted it to feel like it was a film that was made in the same, at the very same time that Citizen Kane was made in that era, and it was sort of a, not a sister film to it, but you know, a parallel film to it, so yes. that. As I went forth, I would always take steps back because I realized that the mandate was sort of like we're making a period film, not about a period, but as if we're in the period. Yes. So everything yeah, right. was, everything was put to wait as t- in terms of like, does this feel like I'm in the period? You know, whenever I'd get too deep into the painting of it or too deep into the, to the sculpting of it or the artistry of it or putting forth the sets and doing the design, there's always that you need to step back and really look at it. And every time I'd step back, I always did it with the framing of, you know, keep it in that period, make it, make it feel like we're actually doing it in that period.
2: You know? right and that that's the fun part of our job too is to be able to do that kind of research and feel like you're inhabiting that era and and how how do we translate that to the audience and mm-hmm. that it's the challenge but it's also the delight that, the fun
0: part of of watching movies like meek for me yeah. is that people have created the time capsule so right (laughs) right you. so it translates you feel that when the care and the the attention to detail is put into letting us escape to the period because i've lived i've lived my los angeles my whole life and i also love the city and i love everything kind of like evoking the era the period right Mm -hmm. oh yeah the, Mm -hmm. the, the idea of of los angeles as this this movie town in the in the desert, in the West, when there wasn't a whole <laughs> lot else here going on. And I've whenever you come across either, I don't know if it's shots in a Buster Keaton movie or, or right. whatever it is that's, <laughs> that's right. actually LA and you're like, oh my God, yes. I can't believe that. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, I have pictures in, in my
0: home that are like black and white, you know, dirt roads yeah, in too. Los Angeles yep. that are now asphalt, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. And so yeah. there's this beautiful thing that you guys got to do of recreating it. How did you? I mentioned a few places where a source, but Jane, you've mentioned a few times, like diving into the research. How did you find places today that looked like LA then?
2: Oh well, that that's Don. Don and David drove around for ages, right, Don? Yeah, to, we to find the locations.
1: Yeah, I, the way this project progressed, I think the official production start date was the end of August of the year before last. What was that? 2019. So David and I actually started, it was pretty much six weeks before that, scouting on our own and just, you know, having conversations. And that's when the movie gets made. And just having time where you're not coming back to the office and, you know, being assaulted by you know 50 people 50 people with a list of questions that goes on forever um but you know for us it was and for me especially you know i just with david i spend the first few days just listening i just want to hear i just want to absorb it i just want to listen and then you, you know we start to go back and forth about what might be a stage set and what might be a location but you know and those weeks weren't you know they weren't we were working, but we weren't working hours where we felt drained. It was sort of a, it was a nice creative, you know, let's get to know this project and give me a chance to understand what's in your head time. You know, from there, we were able to sort of, or at least I walk away with sort of a template of what this could be, but, you know, finding the locations, there are some things in LA, it's very restrictive. You know, it's, you know how LA is a city. They they tear down antiquity and build a jamba juice and you know sadly yeah oh yeah there's nothing
0: old here even it's funny when we there are there are those little things right but that's part of why i ask is if you go to you know you can go to rome and see things oh yeah years ago on the (laughs) block in los angeles it's hard to find a building that's a 100 years old i mean they exist but it is a tricky thing but you have to you have to know where to look i guess and you have to know where and, to look yeah. and you
1: have to be selective you have to be you you have to approach it with a different sort of set of eyes you can't you can't walk into things thinking oh i'll just shoot this whole street or why isn't this whole street the way it looked you know 100 years ago <laughs> it, it, it just you know it just isn't the way the world works so you know we we found that you know we shot on in front of Bullocks Wilshire, which was an iconic or still is an iconic piece of architecture for Los Angeles. And, you know, we can, uh, you know, able to do some CG help where needed, but you bring in a few picture cars, you simplify things, you bring in a few people walking the street in period wardrobe and a couple of traffic lights that are period. And, you know, you start to build it, you know, I think one of the best finds for me, at least the one I was excited about was the When it was first scripted, when they left on the train station to go to San Simeon the first time, it was scripted as Union Station, which ironically wasn't even built then. That's how the <laughs> that's the main...
0: so that's crazy because Union Station is one of those things that's in LA that you say yeah that looks a little like what I imagine old LA to look right like. right that's the that's, place that's that the place old enough. You
1: know, yeah that's the place wow. everybody goes to when they were doing a period train station in LA you know so right. I was reading and I believe it was in Marion Davies autobiography and you know I don't know how much you can rely on that being truth but. I was reading in it that um, the actors would actually be taken to, they would be provided train tickets to go to San Simeon and the train would leave from the Glendale train station. So we looked into it and found that the Glendale train station, ironically, which is now kind of a commuter station, I believe, is still intact and still has this, you know, this Spanish colonial revival frontage to it as it did in the day. And it was just it was so exciting to kind of find that kind of tucked away on this little side street. And I'm sure people listening to this will go, Oh, I go there every day. (laughs) But for me, for me, it was a hidden little piece of architecture that I just really hadn't experienced. And it was wonderful. You know,
2: what was amazing to me is the way Don pieced it together, because even in one scene, sometimes there are four and five different locations that he modified and, you know, built sets into or just, but it cut together so beautifully that no one knows. Uh, yeah. It was just really amazing. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Yeah. No,
0: it's true. You can't find the seams in watching it, even if you yeah. know LA and I'm curious cause, cause. But a lot of
1: that is a lot of that's David too, you know? So
0: yes. Right. And in watching it also, I wonder things as Don explained, Jen, when, you know, you have a corner where maybe the front of a building works and then you have the costume, so your, you know, principals and there's a couple picture cars that you would provide. How many pieces did you put together in the set deck? And <laughs> did you have, like, hero pieces, or did you come across pieces where maybe things were on a wish list, but you couldn't get them, but there would be like, oh, but I've got this great street light that's perfect, and we will feature <laughs> that prominent. Like, I'm really curious how you deploy what exists, right? Because not everything exists.
2: Exactly. Well, newsstands served us well. We uh, we recreated a lot of magazines from the era. I bought a, a bunch of covers of magazines on eBay, and then we scanned them, got permission to use them, and recreated. You know, we put phony things inside of it, but we we reprinted a lot of magazine covers. So newsstands, because you could open them up a little bit.
0: Yeah. So we dress
2: them the way they used to look in the day, right. and that would help us hide a few, you know, ills. Um, but you could it was also funny.
0: it's it's like creating a wall of period, essentially, right? <laughs> exactly,
2: and it yeah, and it's a, it's a quick, easy way to help help David hide something and to tell the story at the same time. So you know where you are because you see the the fashion of the era. It was funny that Don mentioned that Bullock's Wilshire because there was this. Do you remember that horrible crosswalk button?
1: Oh, right. Yeah. 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 yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. (laughs) And I I thought, what am I going to do with that? And I happened to. What did we do with that? I I found this wonderful, you know, turn of the 20th century firebox. We gutted it and slid it over the crosswalk button. And so. That is so cool. We got away with it. Yeah. We were lucky. You kind of
0: MacGyvered an existing thing you couldn't move to turn it into something appropriate. So how do you you just try to gather everything you can that might be of use to you like that, (laughs) that that you might have to gut and and (laughs) deploy?
2: That was a a special, I thought, you know, I'm going to need something like this. So yes, for equipment and things like that, we we did a lot of, you do a lot of hiding when you do a period film
1: yeah that's what you spend a lot of time, you know when we did the back lots, my goodness, oh, we walked the streets of the back lots, and you know I did it with with my art directors and set designers, and it was just you know one bollard that wasn't period, one yeah. you know it just went on and on. the list went forever, everything from security cameras to
2: handicap ramps,
1: handicap ramps to steel right. case yeah. steelcase doors to security cameras to you know, non-period lighting fixtures
0: to, yep. So it's know, just like a minefield of, of issues is. oh. that to the untrained eye would go completely unnoticed, well, right? Well, you know, you're, just lost. yeah, it's even my eye,
1: you know, I stood, yeah. you because you go and you look at it and you think, oh, this alleyway is great. There's not too much to do here. And then you start to walk it and yeah. all of a sudden you're like, wait a second. This is like a really bad buffet, you know?
2: <laughs> <laughs> even the fire hydrants are different. We had, yeah. we had periods. Period mailboxes that were, had a cutout inside that we sleeved uh, over the wrong, the wrong fire hydrants.
0: Yeah. So, so. <laughs> is this one of those places where the perfectionism, the exacting approach, is trickles through the whole group with oh, David yeah. in a Fincher project? Or, or are these the kinds of things that you think you would have been like, are there sets where probably it would be like, yeah, okay, whatever, we'll live with it? Or is that no. there aren't? Okay, yeah. That's I was kind of thinking. I don't know how much that's a Fincher thing or that's just a always thing. That's an always thing. That's with an me. always yeah. thing.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah, I maybe mean, that's why it works with you though. <laughs> well, I mean, it's definitely a David thing, but it's also yes. it's you know again it goes harkens back to you know do your job right and don't be lazy. Yeah, you know exactly.
2: Yeah. No, we're all a little obsessed with doing <laughs> trying it right. to make things exactly right. Yeah.
0: Were there other challenges in transitioning from color to, were there other places where, Why I know we don't have a wardrobe or prop representative here, but from both of you from the department, where there was something that was great, but oh, the color isn't quite right. And, and that changes the tone look in black and white because of course some things, will their color they may not be in color when it hits black and white but the color will impact what the black and white look
1: is Right, exactly, yeah I think Jan had to recover several
0: pieces of I mean it
1: was mostly in Jan's court on that issue because I could control what the set colors were.
2: Yeah, we did a bit of reupholstery just to be sure that it worked and then finding the San Simeon dining room was a Probably one of my bigger challenges for
0: for our team. Um, yeah, it's it's huge and and well yes. and intricate. Can you tell me about putting it together?
2: Well, we uh, Trish, our our prop master Trish Geller, Glenn actually dragged her family to San Simeon. Dawn and I resisted going, but I would not go dra- on
1: purpose. I I,
2: <laughs> I refuse
1: to go to a a um, Julia Morgan theme park. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs>
2: Exactly. But Trish, Trish went and took spy pictures for us. I went, I went, I, I actually did go there and bought a bunch of Julia Morgan books and the, the book that have gave us the menu options.
1: Yeah. Trish but you know, I, excuse me for interrupting you, but okay. no, but no. I wanted to say that in terms of that, I didn't go there on purpose because early on I was doing research and I came across these beautiful black and white photos taken of San Simeon from the day and actually beautiful night photos on the grounds and Marion Davies on the grounds and with the light fixtures that that we emulated and when we did our work and beautiful black and white interior photos. And that's where I wanted to be. I, I, I wanted to be. I wanted to be there, and I purposely didn't go because of that reason. I could I could pull books off from the library, stacks of books on San Simeon, Hearst Castle, and go through them and see in clear color photographs what it is. So it's almost like taking the tour in a sense. But the black and white photos, I, I really relied upon those because I felt like that was our world, and I wanted to be there, and I wanted to stay there, and... You know, just in terms of being in that black and white world of that period, you know, I felt that that to me was a, a key piece of research.
2: It's true. It's true. Uh, the main thing for me was that I was worried that it was one long monastery table and Trish spied mm-hmm. <laughs> that it, it was actually two tables put together. So it kind of gave us permission to cheat a little bit. So we actually made it camera friendly and used three tables we built three tables and we matched exactly the grain on the top of the tables so that it really does look like it. I mean, we, we are obsessed. I mean, that's one (laughs) of the, there were a
1: few elements there where we were, where we wanted to get as close as possible to what was really there. But in terms of the overall, it was more about emulating it than it was replicating it because, I mean, who are we kidding? If I would have gone there and seen it in person, I probably would have had, I probably would have died of a heart attack or something. <laughs> there's so much, no, there is just so much impressive detail into it and I would be overwhelmed. So it was better almost to take a step back, see it in the black and white photographs and say, okay, we're creating a world for our narrative that represents right. this indulgence and this,
2: yeah,
0: you exactly. Know. Yeah. And so the way you put it, I could tell what that intangible element to those photographs was and what it was you were trying to capture and that it was not something in an actual physical space. It was a feeling about a photograph, a recreation of a space mm-hmm. and, and a place in time. Mm-hmm. And I think that's such an interesting point about how to approach production design or just the visual, the creation of a new space because you're never making... A functional. You you aren't you aren't recreating Hearst Castle. No, you're no, trying to create no. pieces of it for this film, for this <laughs> and story. Then have an, yeah, right, and create that vibe that that feeling, the essence of um, it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's yeah. you don't get distracted by the grandeur, by the wrong details, by the. It's such no. a such a good uh, lesson in in how to identify what it is you're really after.
2: Oh, absolutely. And then with Trish layering, as Don was saying earlier, layering in her her world and the costumes. and I, I don't know about you, Don, but I could even tell there were some photographs that our onset dresser took that you could see the way Trish dressed everyone and the way their hair and makeup was, the, the actors actually were striking a pose that was more of the era. They seemed to embrace it as well. And that was really exciting to see. Yeah,
1: there's a romanticism to it as well. Mm -hmm, Yeah, mm -hmm. I think so. And I think one thing great about the film is also that the execution of it, shooting day for night on the exterior grounds, you know, an Mm. old tried and true technique, you know, and embracing that and saying, you know, David from the beginning with his vision and his genius saying, this is how I want to do this. You know, Mm -hmm. I want to do it day for night. I don't want to mess around with night. And I think it just gave <laughs> such a you know a wonderful look to it, yes. and there was something about executing it in that manner that was mm-hmm. you know made you feel like oh wow we're we're really there because yeah.
0: it had to be made as though it was made at the time, so using all the tools. Mm-hmm. Right, that's a really interesting aspect. Was that fidelity to that the spirit of that that he laid out at the beginning? I yes. want it to be like it's sitting next to Citizen Kane, made the same year, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> right. companion piece.
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. We've talked we've used up so much of our time just talking about Mank which is great. I do quickly want to talk <laughs> to you both about just your careers in general. Um and for people interested in learning more about being in production design and set decoration and art department, could you each tell me what drew you to the departments initially as you embarked oh. on your careers?
1: Oh boy. I came in through the I came in through the back door kind of. I went to art school, fine art school in the 70s at a you know, fairly liberal university in Arizona and it you know, doing production design, I didn't even know what it was. And and those days they called it art direction anyway, but I had no clue and I sort of fell into a job when I graduated from art school. My first work was being a night janitor which to this day, I still love having done because I would go into stores at night and be by myself. But then a couple of graduate students, a couple of graduate students that I uh, went to school with opened up a small scenery company in, in Arizona. And they called me one day to come help them with some things. And I literally started by just kind of sweeping floors and doing lumber runs for them. And I thought, well, this is something to do. You know, I was kind of you know, what do you do when you come out of art school? You you have other aspirations, but you also face the reality and the truth. And one thing led to another, and they opened up a small scenery shop here in Los Angeles. And I came over and worked for them on commercials and videos in the early 80s. And it was an independent, it wasn't part of the union, and kind of did everything in those days. You would <laughs> yeah. do props, you do set dressing. And you do runs, you do everything. And I, you know, I got well versed in all the different areas and I'm always to this day grateful for that experience of kind of being a jack of all trades and master of none. And I just kind of got introduced to, you know, I kept working and working and I became an art director on commercials and um, a DP I worked with introduced me to a director for a film and I stepped into it and did it. And I was, in all truthfulness i was pretty lost it was a process i wasn't used to or had any experience in and the one thing i took away though i thought wow this director is you know he's he's dealing with something other than you know you know hold the bag of lay's potato chips higher and you know <laughs> put the beer on the table sooner and and you know it was i was something where i was like okay that maybe this is where I want to be and this is what I want to do. And from there, I just kind of put my mind to it and made a lot of mistakes on projects along the way. But, you know, you learn from your mistakes and I still make mistakes. My goodness. The, I made mistakes. <laughs> oh,
0: yeah. I made we mistakes
1: on Mank Like you wouldn't believe. And I don't want to go into those, but um,
0: <laughs> we, we can, we can <laughs> avoid. We'll yeah. secrets.
1: You know, I have a kindred heart for people that sweep stages. Cause that's what I used to have to do. And, You know, I always look at that and go, okay, there's potential
0: there. Yeah, that's such such a cool origin story (laughs) from sweeping stages. Jan, what was your, was it similar? Were you similar in art department doing a bunch of different things? I mean, I see on IMDb, at least you have a, uh, you have a credit for Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, which is pretty cool. (laughs)
2: That's exactly. Well, yeah, I came through theater. Uh, I was, uh, work, working in experimental theater in Pittsburgh because my roommate wanted to be an actress. That's how I started.
0: Wow! And, uh, and that I just made you some... think, oh, I'll get involved in theater too. <laughs> oh,
2: yeah, pretty soon I was building the sets and running the lights and the sound, and you know, there for performances every night. And and I met some folks that worked at the public television station, and I was in working in retail and really hating it and i had quit my job and someone called me up and said uh they need some help at mr rogers get down here right now and oddly enough the art director jack guest who was uh with mr rogers for years there was no like now we have uh you know uh guides of what colors are and all the everything in the neighborhood would be laid out and all the colors would be have numbers next to them and He had nothing, so he just would challenge us to mix the colors. So he actually was a major educator for me. He he would just he he would challenge me to mix the colors, and I would come up and throw these things in, and he would squint his eye and say, "No, it needs a little raw umber, or it needs this, or it needs that." I hung around there and worked as a scenic artist for a while, and then, which I didn't even know that was a job. And then I became the prop master for Mr. Rogers. Oh, wow. And when Mr. Rogers wasn't shooting, George Romero was making movies in Pittsburgh, zombie movies. So then I became the prop prop master for George Romero.
0: That's about Um, as far on the (laughs) two ends of the spectrum, right? (laughs) You went from from Mr. Rogers' neighborhood to the zombie apocalypse, back and forth. Yes,
2: running back and forth. And then I just found myself thinking, maybe this is it. You know, maybe this is what I'm supposed to do with my life. And and it was so rewarding that I just kept pursuing it and was lucky enough to meet some people who really helped me out. They were the, the head of the Carnegie Mellon Design School, Cletus Anderson, was the production designer around town in Pittsburgh. I was hired on the cruise and he kept hiring me and I learned so much. It was amazing.
0: And you sort of worked your way to LA, started doing bigger yeah. and bigger projects and features and always kind of in, in set decorator. But there's so much like the variance. I mean, I'm sure it never oh God, gets boring, yeah. right? From things like, you know, Argo to Pop uh, yeah. Gun. Like, that's pretty different, exactly. right? Exactly.
2: <laughs> yes. But like Don, you know, you I never said no to it to a job in the early days. I just I did whatever. I would sweep the floor and do all of those things because you just you, you learn. You learn so much just by being around people and listening. Yes, and yes. I think that's key.
1: Yes, and I think it's good to experience what, you know, what everybody has to go through a little bit. Exactly. You know?
2: exactly but like
1: everything else in life you know you blink and 10 years has gone by and you blink again and 20 (laughs) has gone by and you sort of sit there going well did i really decide i wanted to do this or did i just sort of end up doing it and so maybe in another sense i'm still searching
2: yeah i'm not skilled for any any other job now yeah (laughs) that's yeah
0: except sweeping (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you could always go back to sweeping I imagine at some point though there's a moment where you're like maybe like when you're getting an Oscar <laughs> in your case Don where you're like I guess this is what I do right
1: <laughs> yeah I, you know I'm kind of shy about that stuff I'm a little, yeah. I, I I don't like drawing attention to myself too much I, I like to be on a, on a film and do the sets and do them right and do the location work and do it right and just sort of be a mystery and not I I don't like to be in the forefront I just would.
0: would you say for both of you that uh, this is what I'm hearing but I'm curious that the work well done becomes its own reward yes yes
2: yes for sure and and a lot of times people on the crew don't even know who we are they wouldn't recognize us if we were standing next to them
0: the projects you've both done this mank recently, but also so many on your resume. Uh, it feels like the departments are you're in is demanding, but your work mm. speaks for itself. And I think that it goes unnoticed often, like you're saying, like you know, what people might think about if we've done it right. Is, but, <laughs> right, right, exactly. Yeah,
1: that's the point is that y- you want to do it to the point where I mean, you want to do it in a way and execute in a way so that people watch the movie and they yeah, walk away from it with a, a total experience of yes. of the world and what that story was. And, you know, the most important thing to me from from the get-go is the story and how what the director wants to tell in that story. And that's what we're all there for. And that's what we're all there to support. And, again, it's about laying aside the ego and saying, you know, I'm doing this for – I would rather have somebody look at Mankin – 15, 20 years and go, what a wonderful film, as opposed to look at it and just say, wow, that was really great art direction. (laughs) You know? No, I mean that. I mean, because I think there's a lot of meaning in that film. And that's what I work for. I work, I try to work on things that serve a purpose of meaning somehow.
0: It's a really important point to me. And I think for our audience that in an industry that depends on reception to define success often. To talk to people who work in it and say, I am satisfied when I know that I've done the job as good as I possibly can and not dependent on because reception is something you have no control over, right?
2: I think if our colleagues feel that we have supported the story properly, I think that that's pretty great. You know, um, not calling attention to the to the environments, but just supporting the story is really important to me.
1: Yeah, I agree. Not drawing attention to oneself. Being anonymous, you know, being anonymous is the, I live in the North Valley, and I drive down like um, Devonshire all the way to Canoga. And I love it because it's strip mall after strip mall after strip mall. <laughs> and you go and you see the same signs on these strip malls, donut shop, coin op, laundry, whatever. And it's all, it all becomes anonymous. And that's sort mm-hmm. of the pinnacle of existence for me is if I could be a coin-op laundromat somewhere on Devonshire, that would be success.
2: <laughs> that is so you, Doug. Oh, that's beautiful.
0: That's, that's really well said um, and interesting. If I could be a strip mall in the valley, I'll be a happy man. <laughs> that's quite a headline. Yeah. I, I, I've i loved talking to you guys. The question I'm going to end on, I feel like you've kind of asked answered it, but I want to ask it anyway in case you have a variation, was just... If somebody's interested in getting started in art department or is curious about having a career in it, I, I, I'm i assuming we can say, like, start by sweeping the floors. But like, what would you what would you recommend? Um, because it's, you know, it's a whole field within this industry.
1: I, do, I think start out, you know, obviously start out as a production assistant and listen, you know, I think listening is the is you know, sort of the quality that gets lost these days, pay attention, listen, be alert, you know, don't, don't sit there on your iPhone, you know, scrolling through the news of the day or whatever.
2: I agree. And I speak to a lot of classes of of people that want to be decorators. And I, I, I tell them to listen and observe also, you know, look at, look at how people live and remember it, take mental, take either take a photograph or take a mental photograph, what are people's habits, you know, study people, study people, because, you know, when we're doing something contemporary and where do people come home and take out, take everything out of their pocket and drop it. And, you know, Mm -hmm. that's the environment that we want to create. But unless you're open to observing all of that, you know, I kind of drive my friends crazy (laughs) because I'm always looking around at what are they doing and what are, you know, what does their kitchen look like? Where do they store things? what What do they have in their doorway? And you know all of that, you just sort of take it in, be a sponge, and take all that in because we need to then process that into some story that we're going to help tell because it tells so much about individuals.
0: i It's really interesting you say all of that because I'm drawn I'm struck by a lot of times early in the early going when people are making their own films they overlook certain skills. And one of them might be creating the, the complete world of the location. And it might be as simple as people don't put their keys down on an empty table. There's always stuff exactly. on it. <laughs> exactly. And you just described this exactly. tiny little corner of the human experience that doesn't often make it because it becomes yeah. an afterthought. But every filmmaker yeah. should be aware, as Fincher is, of every specific detail in the, in the world they're filming.
1: Yeah, and be attentive to the mundane in the world because there's more of that than there is anything, and that's what makes up our lives. To be honest with you, and there's a beauty in it. There really is. There's an
0: aesthetic to it,
2: and that's exactly you say it much, much more eloquently, Don. But that's exactly the point. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you both so much again for doing. Thank that. you. Thanks, everyone, for listening to our interview with Jan Pascal and Don Burt. Thanks for both. Thanks to both of them for coming on the podcast. It is always a pleasure to have people who have excelled in these corners of the industry on this podcast. I hope you all enjoy it as much as I do. If you do, please like, rate, and subscribe. Leave a comment. Let us know what you think. It helps more people find the podcast if you share it. Follow us on Twitter. Like us on Facebook, head over to nofilmschool.com, read all the stories we have about this and more. But please tune into the podcast. We have our weekly show, plus we're going to have tons of other great interviews coming up. We have one with Channing Godfrey Peoples coming soon. She made the film last year's Sundance, Miss Juneteenth in distribution. Now you can see it. You can hear her talk all about making it and how it was truly a personal passion project that rose to the top. Thanks so much for listening.